When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Mark Ronson, and this is the Fader Uncovered podcast. In this interview series, I'll be speaking with some of the most influential and groundbreaking musicians in the world, from genre-defining stars to avant-garde trailblazers, about their lives and careers. Each episode will be rooted in these musicians' iconic Fader cover stories, an institution that over the past two decades has told artists' stories like no other. The podcast is a chance for us to talk about the past, present, and future, reflecting on their breakthroughs, diving into their lives when their covers hit shelves, and discussing what the future might hold now. And it's an opportunity for me to speak to some of the artists I most admire. This is The Fader Uncovered with Mark Bronson. Today, my guest is icon and genuine musical legend Pharrell Williams. Pharrell appeared on the cover of Fader 11 back in 2002 with his partner in music, Chad Hugo, and the two of them made up The Neptunes, one of the greatest production forces of all time. It really is impossible to overstate the sonic disruption that The Neptunes caused when they first burst on the scene in 1998. I was DJing in clubs five nights a week, and New York was smack dab in the middle of the shiny suit era. Do you remember that? Puffy and Mace ruled the dance floors and the airwaves, and yes, you had Gangstar and Big Pun and Jay-Z have volume two, but for the most part, we were in the Jiggy era. So when Queen's MC Noriega dropped his Neptunes-produced single, Super Thug, it was truly like an alien spaceship had landed in the club. I mean, the fact that the song starts with this helicopter noise definitely contributed to that feeling. But the ominous synthesized clav melody, followed by bone-rattling drums in this brutally stiff pattern that still somehow made you want to dance. Nori's crazy staccato flow. And then, to make it even more crazy, Pharrell's reinterpretation of Blondie's Heart of Glass in the bridge, which added this whole extra layer of New York even though they were from Virginia. The whole thing was bananas. When you dropped that song as a DJ, you didn't know if people were going to dance or start a goddamn mosh pit. The song soon hit number one on Billboard's rap singles chart. They had taken one of Queen's most beloved underground talents, Noriega, made a very left field but undeniable record, and in doing so knocked Will Smith's Just the Two of Us from the top spot. Think about that. Chad Hugo and Pharrell Williams, a.k.a. the Neptunes, had landed, and they would rule the dance floors, the charts, and most of pop music well into the mid-2000s, crafting career-defining or sometimes career-reviving hits for Jay-Z, Busta Rhymes, Mystical, Justin Timberlake, Nelly, Britney, Fabulous, Usher, Gwen Stefani, Snoop Dogg. Usually the song would have an incredible beat, an amazing, undeniable hook from Pharrell, sometimes sung in his Curtis Mayfield falsetto, sometimes spoken rapped in the most nonchalant way imaginable. And except for the unifying fact that it was groundbreaking, you really couldn't pigeonhole their sound. They could make the most sinister drug lord records, 
basically anything by their protégé's clips, to the funkiest of the funky, hot in here, Nelly, shake your ass mystical, and then to straight up bleacher bangers like Hollaback Girl. They were unique, gifted, they were on a ridiculous run, and everyone fucked with it. It's often noted that in 2003, a staggering 43% of all the songs played on US radio were produced by the Neptunes. They also got their weirder side on with their group project NERD, marrying live instrumentation and a rockier side of things, which led to true alt-bangers like Lap Dance, Rock Star, She Wants to Move. The Neptunes graced the cover of The Fader in 2002. It's a beautiful cover, one of my favorites, and a lot of that had to do with Jonathan Mannion's idea to have Japanese-style ocean waves hand-painted behind them to accentuate the whole Neptune-ness of it all. An epic shot for an epic duo during an epic time. Dude, thank you so much for doing this. It was crazy when I was just looking at that era. Do you remember this picture, the Fader cover? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was my first yeah. cover. I was just telling Rob, you know, how, how appreciative I am. I was looking through, like, specifically that era, 2002, because you had already obviously had, you hit the ground running. It had all those hits since 99, but, like, I think what it was is as I was like looking at those songs, like 2002 Neptune songs, you don't have to call Pasigavasi a girlfriend, hot in here, grinding, nothing, when the last time, love you better. Like I realized why I was getting so excited was because it was probably my favorite era of DJing in the way that it was the last time that my tastes also synced up with like what was the most popular shit of the time, which was your records. Like I was excited to go down to the club because I couldn't wait to play Diddy or what. And, and some of the times Diddy was in the club, like there were just all these things. Like I knew you had already hit it at that point and it was a lot of success and acclaim, but do you remember anything specifically about that kind of era, that time, the, the, you know, those, those records you were making? Probably the only thing um, that sticks out the most to me is I loved it and I couldn't believe it. And right around that time is when I was, you know, still very arrogant. But as much as I was arrogant, I still couldn't believe it. You know, as an Aries, the arrogance was natural to me, but it wasn't as solid. The arrogance was not as grounded to the truth because at the very core of me, I still couldn't believe that was my life. I was like, oh, this is like really happening for us. Like, okay, how long does this last? Right. You know, I was like this cocktail of like gratitude, disbelief and arrogance. And that was a lot of fun. Also, you're allowed to lean into the arrogance, I feel like, in some ways, because you were such outsiders. You didn't come from New York, L.A., even Chicago, Detroit, Atlanta, like other places. Like, you really just came and, like, even that Fader cover, it doesn't look like we've got a chip on our shoulder, but it looks a little bit like we've got a chip on our shoulder. You yeah. know, like, it's like, hey, listen, like, we, you guys, we had to force our way in here with our weirdo amazing shit and now we're gonna fucking enjoy like looking like that yes 100 percent. that's what it was all about that was the arrogance yeah like you can't tell me nothing like we did it different and we here i can't believe we're here is this really happening <laughs> oh my goodness this is so fun um okay yeah but you can't tell me nothing 
how was that work ethic? Because I've seen interviews, of course, as like a producer myself, I always study the work ethics of people I love. And I'm always like, wait, why the fuck am I here till five in the morning? I read that Chad and Pharrell, like they go from two to nine and they're making the biggest records of all time. But what was the work ethic actually like at that point to stay so prodigious or would you just have these like bursts of creativity over just a couple days and just end up with 15 tracks like how how was that just i mean the mining you know it's like people who like you know are companies that do like crypto mining you just you enjoy it it's what you do you know yeah. when that machine is on that machine is on it's like you just go oh look what came out today or a uh, couple mediocres or oof, like four or five, then you just yeah. go in. I, I, it's still that way now. See, the thing is, is sometimes something doesn't make sense that day, but then like two years later, I'll remember that beat and go back to that beat and it'll be perfect for them. A lot of songs that we made for certain people end up going to people five years later or six years later or 10 years later, like, you know, it happens. Yeah, I always thought of that Jay-Z line because I'm such a nerd and when the, and because I wasn't established yet and I just loved studying in the same way that I loved reading liner notes when I was a kid. Like I loved all the folklore around the music you made because I looked up to you and I loved the music, but it was, I always think of that J line, I'm still spending money from 88 because everyone would be like, wow, you know, like some of these hits that they're having literally like number ones right now in 2004 are beats that they made in 99 it's not because they're lazy it's because the shit was so ahead of its time then but there were all these stories and i guess what you're telling me is that that was kind of true yes some of the some of the songs that came out in 2002 were like pieces of music from you know 96 or 95. wow can you remember one not to make anyone feel like they had they got like yesterday's shit but because obviously oh, i would always had... tell them no everyone everyone knew i would always tell them yeah. I don't know, Slave for You, Britney. Yeah. That was for Janet. Right. And that was like from the 90s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't have to call. And a lot of the Justin stuff, I always remember hearing that those were supposed to be Michael records. Is yeah. that Was there some truth to that or was that just DJs mythologizing? No, for sure. Right. Yeah. Were you in the studio a lot of times? Were you crafting with the artists in the room? Yeah. Sometimes would you, you would make it with them in the room? Yeah. Yeah. That was definitely, I mean, sometimes we would pull things from the past, but a lot of times it was like, you know, stuff on the spot. Cause you're like pulling from that person's energy. Yeah. I always say like, you know, songs come about, at least the music, like the backdrops for them. They come about when a person walks in the studio, the energy that they bring with them and what they're going through at that moment. It's also what it is that they say that they're looking for. And then there's also like a question of how do you, you know, create juxtaposition to what they naturally already do already. Mm -hmm. You know, if a person sings and they have a voice that sounds very smooth, then the music shouldn't be like silk because that's what they do every day. They sing mm -hmm. very smooth. We should see what it feels like to hear them over something mountainous and very rocky and, um, you know, with a lot of layers. It's always about yeah. just, you know, those three things for me. I think that that's the other thing that I really loved about the music that's really remarkable is 
you took oddballs. Like, you took people who were eccentric and weird, not necessarily nerdy. They could have been gangster or whatever, mystical, ODB, Nori, people that really didn't have a place on mainstream MTV, on the radio. People that really, I wouldn't say didn't deserve, because of course they did, but really didn't have a place having top 10, top 40 pop hits. And, like, that's what was so great. And I think that's why all the hip-hop heads were always just so wild about what you guys did is because you picked people that were our heroes the sort of more underground people and then suddenly you got like nori nothing as like one of the big pop tunes like that was really remarkable to me so i call those kinds of people that you're talking about characters mm -hmm. they're not just run-of-the-mill like artists from a particular genre none of those guys are typical rappers they're characters right and they they have like a a bank of ad-libs that they go to that are very recognizable. They pick certain kinds of melodies. They usually pick like melodies and patterns, you know, with the way that they do things. They're all really different people. And to do something with them that's accessible to more people, which would make it popular is, is what we love. I still love that. Now everybody's different. You right. know, now different is like, everyone's weird. Everyone's super creative. Yeah. And not that they always weren't. It's just that back in the 90s, we definitely had alternative rock. We definitely had alternative rap, you know, and everyone was creative and everyone was different. But it got to a place where it was like, there started to be like, okay, if you're a rapper, you talk about this and you dress this particular way. And you got to make a choice. Either you make alternative, like, you know, music that like the indie, you know, independent alternative backpack or, you know, you carry a gun and, you know, you're a gangster and you, you know, or you sell dope or you just a shooter. And, you, you know, there's all these archetypes, right? There were like a lot of archetypes, but you kind of chose one. It's kind of like choosing a character for like a video game. Yeah. And we were seeking to break that. We were like, okay, we come from, you know, Virginia Beach, Virginia. We have roots in music, you know, marching band. We have roots in skateboarding. We have roots in like, not any different than anybody else, but hood affiliation. And, and we also had like a church background. So when you mix all that together, along with the fact that like, there was no music industry in Virginia Beach or the 757 at that time. Um, and when I say none, I mean like, there's just not enough. It wasn't like being in New York or LA, yeah. right? Or like Chicago or like, you know, any town where they have like, you know, or Atlanta, it wasn't that. So when you mix all that together and then you give us a shot, when we get there, our number one thing to do is like not be put in any of those boxes because those boxes didn't welcome us. Downtown New York City hip-hop clubs in the late 90s were an amazing amalgam of people. Party people, drug dealers, rappers, athletes, breakdancers, models, artists, skateboarders. It was a special time. It felt like the closest my generation got to the early 80s famed parties at the Roxy where you had Blondie and Africa Bombada meeting up for the first time. 
I would usually get to the club at 9.55 p.m. and have my first record on for doors at 10 o'clock. And I'd watch this amazing medley of people file into the club. The Supreme Kids, Weed Heads, Pretty Girls, usually Guru from Gangstar. And one amazing night where Biggie and Jay came in wearing matching fedoras because they were celebrating one of their birthdays. By pure coincidence or divine musical intervention, the Neptunes came all the way from Virginia Beach, but they had a sound and a feel and an image that somehow incorporated all of these things. Like I said before, Pharrell incorporated one of downtown's most beloved icons, Debbie Harry, in that first Noriega tune, Super Thug. Downtown New York clubs at that time were also a place where the jiggy aesthetic of Puff and the underground bangers of Most and Talib lived alongside each other. The Neptunes did the same. Technically, their first hit was actually Mace's Looking At Me, and then they went into Nori's Super Thug. These two artists, Nori and Mace, couldn't have been any further apart on the stylistic scale. Their only common denominator was the Neptunes banger. And the other ace in the hole that the Neptunes had was that they weren't just producers or beat makers. They came with the not-so-secret weapon of the Pharrell hook. Because we know you can deliver the best beat ever, but if the artist messes up the hook, or you have no hook, you've got an underground club banger at best, but no radio, no MTV, no BET, no Billboard, no Smash. The Neptunes made it foolproof for you. The hooks that Pharrell penned and often performed on songs like Shake Your Ass, Give It To Me, Got Your Money, Pass the Gavassier, and maybe my personal favorite, Nori's Nothing. Well, they were ridiculous, and they appealed to everyone. Plus, they had so much image appeal. Chad was this sort of cool, nonchalant hipster. Pharrell, soon to become a true fashion icon, was the dazzlingly bejeweled skateboarder single-handedly jump-starting the trucker hat revival. I mean, it really was no surprise that they were about to become artists in their own right. And now, a quick break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Like we weren't traditional R&B. We weren't traditional rap. We were just like, why do we have to only do one thing? And why do we have to choose a character? Why can't we create our own? And that's what it was about. And that at the moment was different at that time, you know, now everyone's different. Like I said, and that's cool. It's beautiful to see, you know, I just don't like when it's cliche. I like it when like, it's really, and this is just my opinion, right? Everyone's free to be whoever they're going to be. But I like it when your difference is more a reflection of your resilience to conformity and category. Yeah, like almost like your difference is a result of being shunned, not because you woke up one day and you're like, this is who I'm going to say I am, and it's different. Right, 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 right. And we all do that, right? We all choose. Listen, I change my character like every six to eight months. You know, and somebody would point that out to me, and I, because I'll just look the fucking same. I just have like a uniform, you know, and I switch colors and I add this and trade that out. But, you know, it's pretty much six to eight months, it's the same thing you know, like a method actor. And in this past year, I've just been like the same character, just based off of just being home all the time. 
So I get that. I get, I, I get choosing your uniform and I get choosing a zone that you're going to be in. I get that, right? Because I can, I can completely relate to it. It's just that when we start to wear these things on our chest and start to like, when that's what's in your wallet, that's when I feel like it just becomes a bit cliche. I always say that which makes you different is what makes you special. And that difference shouldn't be about you claiming or trying to be something. It should be about the resistance against people trying to force you into a box. That's what makes you different. If there's some resistance there, that's what makes you different. Yeah. The way in which you resist categories, the way in which you resist classifications, that's what makes you different. The way you do it, because you're not the only one, but the way that you do it, that's what makes you different. And that's actually you. Right. Do you think that just looking at probably what a mystical, what a ODB, what a character from that era had to go through to even, do you think the fact that it's just by nature of what the industry was like back then and how hip hop was still not the mainstream, like you just had to, it was just harder back then, I guess. I don't know why I don't want to sound like that grumpy old guy, but like those guys just seem almost like mythological, like superheroes to me. And maybe like, I know we have those characters now, but maybe not quite in the same way. Of course, because they were like outliers. They couldn't help it. They were who yeah. they were. Jay-Z is another one. People don't realize yeah. that. Like people don't realize he used to like rhyme super fast. Like he did that record with Original Flavor and, or even when you Can think- Can I get of, open? Yeah. Yeah. Or like you think about when he did 22 twos, it's like- Yeah. Jay was always like, he's one of us. He's not, yeah. he's not like good because he's just made good records. Like, no, like he's really like a character. He's an odd guy. You know, if you ever spoke to him, have a conversation with him, it's not a regular conversation. Or when he writes and he's just sitting there mumbling to himself in falsetto, by the way. <laughs> wow. Yo, when he writes a rhyme, he doesn't go, cheer, uh, when the Remy's in the city. He doesn't do that. He goes, yo, yo, when the Remy's in the system, ain't no telling what I fucking will I disown. That's what they be yelling, I'm up in my blood. And he like taps yeah. you on the shoulder and takes it back again. That's it. He writes in falsetto. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. That's odd and different that's, and yeah. weird and amazing and yeah. makes him a character. The impression I get from it in my own brain is just that like he has so much respect for like what the final word in the craft is that like until it's really worked out in his head that it's that good it doesn't go into his normal voice i don't know if that's just like preposterous maybe to me i'm like maybe i don't know why he do I, I gotta ask him why he does that i don't know why he does it but I, that he's always done that the other thing that i was thinking about when i was looking at the j records because you obviously have a very special musical relationship there i think that j had slick records obviously giant hits he was fucking amazing, but he had slick records. But I think that the music and the, the stuff that you gave him enabled him to make sexy records. Because when I think of Give It To Me, it's not imaginary player. It's not the smooth R&B shit. It's like he got to be playful and sexy and the beat was so dope and the hook was so dope that like, I really feel, and then into Excuse Me Miss and Change Clothes, like I think that you gave 
Jay, like what he needed to show that entire part of himself that we all like loved. Well, thank you. <laughs> we tried. Yeah. Was that the first record that you made together? Give it to me. I think so. I can't, I can't, I, there I was so. no record that yeah. really like just tore, like that was the record that you were like, New Year's Eve 1999 is 2000 goes like, what am I playing? Am I either going to play next episode or am I going to play Give It To Me? Like, I think that that was like a once every 10 year type of record. Can you tell me a little bit about being in the studio when you made that? I think we made that beat. I want to say, I could be wrong, but I think we made it in one of the, in like a B room, either sound on sound or quiet. It escapes me. And that was like, I don't know, that was like one of them 20 minute beats. Yeah. It's one of them that just like, it just came together. Cause he loved um, Shake, Your, uh, Shake Your Ass. Yeah. He was like, yo, I need that. Yeah. It's like, uh, okay. I'm not gonna lie. Um... What, how I mean, Shake Your Ass and Danger were obviously the bigger pop records, but Bouncing Back was really the one for me, like, because it was just so weird. It was like New Orleans. It was just all this shit. And I think that's the one that really made me think of Mystical as modern James Brown and couldn't get that out of my head. And I don't think we would have gone down. I mean, me and Jeff Basker drove to Baton Rouge to find KLC to then find Mystical to make that record feel right that we did with him and Bruno. And, and there's no way, if you had not put it in my head 15 years ago, that Mystical is James Brown and should be on a song that sounds like the payback. Did you hear him as that as well? Or is that just like something magical that happened when you put him over those tracks? That's exactly what happened. That's exactly what I heard. Yeah. You got to remember he was, you know, he was making all that amazing stuff with Beats by the Pound and Master P and I mean what a what an era by the way oh my goodness man man and I know you're asking me about one thing specifically but that beats by the pound KLC man KLC is to everyone's listening I'm just telling you right now just go listen to early no limit music oh my goodness incredible I I'll never forget being in the club back home in Norfolk and I had never heard any of the Master P stuff before. Right. Man, that shit came on and, and like the crowd just like erupted, just singing the chants. Bitch, get your mind right. Get your mind right. Bitch, get... But hearing them beats, oh my. Yeah. Listen. Yeah. With P in the background going, uh, man, that was a different time, bro. That was like... It was there amazing. I mean the 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 way that those records moved that he did like the the down for my I mean move bitch. Move bitch just was so great because I mean move bitch is obviously one of the all-time anthemic things but the way that move bitch and Southern Hospitality, like your version of a Luda song still had this like amazing energy for the club and I remember you would play those songs and then all the way up to Kanye with stand up. It's just yeah. really interesting to see like all those different interpretations of that thing. But those those KLCs Whoa. fucking man legend. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. No, it's not. <laughs> you don't understand. I have seen so many people get cleaned up in the club. I mean, like fights. Yeah. Like really get their clocks yeah. clean to that. 
Yeah. KLC beats, man. There's just certain songs, man. You getting you listen, you getting cleaned up. Sometime in the early 2000s, I was DJing out in the Bay Area for some party for some skate brand. And I was killing it with my usual New York set, Mob Deep, Tribe, Biggie. And I remember dropping I Got Five on it by the Loonies as my nod to where we were and thinking it was going to slay. And it didn't at all. It got a very ho-hum reaction. I asked the other DJ after the set was done, like, why didn't it go crazy? We're in the Bay. I dropped the Loonies and he said, oh. We never play the original out here, only the remix with Spice One and E-40. I felt like an idiot, a clueless foreigner who came into town and professed his ignorance on two turntables in front of a few hundred people. After that, I always tried to make an effort to learn about the places I was playing, be it another city or continent. One of my favorite things about being a gigging DJ is learning what records work in what places. There are of course universal bangers that play everywhere, but all cities and scenes have their own records, sounds. Learning what these are is like musical excavation. I once went to co-headline a festival in India with Flying Lotus and A.R. Rahman, and I swear, part of the reason the sets went down so well is because I dropped all these Bangra remixes of Big Sean, Nicki Minaj, and Bobby Schmurder that I had heard at the Indian restaurant in London I used to go to. It was music that the young hip waiters would play, much to the consternation of the older management, I'm sure. Knowing those songs and the appreciation for the crowd of me playing them was the reason that I got to kill it over there. Seeing what moves people around the country and around the world, it's one of the great, great benefits and educations of the gigging DJ. Talking about going to the club and, you know, when I first went down to Virginia Beach to DJ, mm -hmm. I think I came down with my New York set. I was like arrogant. I was probably one of the top New York DJs that time. I had a set that I knew I could sort of take it. London, Tokyo, wherever. Yeah. And the energy was okay. It was like I was playing the hits. It was good. People were like, who's this guy? And I was probably like a 7.8. And then the DJ came on after me. And it was a hip-hop club. And they played The Percolator. And it was it was, it's essentially, I mean, I don't have to tell you, but for our listeners, it's yeah. a pro, it's a house electronic, like, I, what, what, the, how do you explain the percolator? Like, what is it? It's, it's a house record, right? Yeah. I mean, like, because we liked a lot of like rap music and then it, there's just a thing where we also love go-go music and then we love like a lot of be more house music and then reggae. And it's interesting yeah. in Virginia, you get... I never thought about this until just now, but literally that's the way you like DJ there. Like you have yeah. there, there has to be a moment. There has to be a 30 minute to 45 minute reggae moment, literally. And they just play the same rhythms with different songs over them yeah. and they be dead serious, serious. Yeah. Then there's a, you know, depending on where it is, there's definitely like a, a go-go moment. And then there's like a house moment. And when they play that, like be more house stuff, you know. You hear the time for the percolator. It's time for the percolator, and it is. And then like, they just lose it. I mean, they love music everywhere, but back home, those are like the the staple like moments there. And it's interesting because the rap music is like where the drug dealers, you know, 
first of all, a lot of people would get shot up during that time. You know, you play like shook ones. I mean, cause you're talking about when you, when you went to go DJ was when? 2002, probably. Yeah. 2000. Yeah. Okay. 2002, 2003. Okay. But like, I think they were still playing these records, but I think right around like the mid nineties, you know, you play Lil Kim's queen bitch. Somebody's getting shot. Shook ones. Right. Somebody's getting shot. Uh, Fuck the mother ends with C murder with Snoop. Somebody getting shot. Yeah. And then when you play the like house music, it's like, that's kind of like with the drug dealers will still be there, but they just be a little bit more peeled back. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then you have yeah. other people who are just as cool, but like for whatever reason, they don't mind getting out there and breaking a sweat. And, yeah. the, and, and there's a lot of girls that's like, that was with that. That was kind of like the energy there. I mean, yeah. listen, you, you definitely, you said you DJed in Virginia Beach or Norfolk. I think it was like both. I think I was just like going down on some kind of like promo tour and I was playing like everywhere down like the East Coast, you know, mm. around that place. But when I saw that and people just go off to the percolator, it suddenly locked in like the Neptune sound and all that, like why all that influence of the slightly more like techno-y noises, even if it was just some fucking theory that I made up on the spot right now. I was like, no, oh shit, of course, facts. this is this weirdo. That's where the weirdo shit comes from. Facts. Yeah. Facts. All of that stuff influenced us. There's that really nice interview you did with Kanye a year ago, and I can't remember exactly, but he says, you took gospel and made it punk. And I'm like, wow. I mean, obviously Kanye is very smart. It's not surprising you say something that's very insightful off the cuff, but that's kind of like that first infusion of the Neptune sound really was, not every song obviously followed that formula, but the chords, exceptionally soulful, great Rod Temperton, Michael Jackson, B-sections and stuff, and then just with the nastiest, aggressive shit when it needed to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, Gospel that's, punk. Yeah. That's like an everything bagel. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, with a lot of people, like these kind of partnerships that we all like look up to and love, Lennon McCartney, Andre, Big Boy, there's always this thing to be like split the dichotomy, like who did what, like does Pharrell, the, is that where the soulful chords, and then that's Chad has the weird noises, and then like you would see footage you guys in the studio would be like completely the opposite, like, and I don't know if it was that kind of thing where you both informed each other so much in the beginning that you almost can't tell where one person's contribution ends or begins or it just becomes this soup. But coming into it at the very beginning, was there a bit of a division of labor? Like Chad was more programming, you were chords. How did it work? Chad taught me how to play chords. Wow. In the beginning, wow. like, you know, I would do like the drums and bass lines and stuff. Yeah. And he taught me how to play chords. And then eventually, you know, it just became that we both could do a lot of things, but I still look at him as like a savant, you know, cause literally we'd be in a session right now and he'd just walk around the corner playing like a wooden flute or some shit, you know, or like a guitar or like, he just walks around playing instruments all day. I mean, that's not all he is, but that's literally like of the many things that he can do. He's different. Chad is different. Very special guy. Yes. I used to come down to Virginia, a little bit to work with Serban and Chad was always really sweet and he knew that I looked up to him very much. He always take the time or come to the studio. He listened to like my first record or one thing I really remember is him taking me, picking him up. He must have had like a Hummer or a Humvee at the time and play me. He's like, oh, I want to play this new Snoop song. And he played Drop It Like It's Hot. 
And I mean, I, you, there's no way for you to imagine hearing that song for the first time, but it, it was just like, I think like all great records, your brain is trying to understand what's happening. And then it's also so good and catchy. There's like eight fucking million things happening, but that was, just, that was something I definitely never forget that moment. Do you remember making that beat? Do you even remember? I feel like you made so many beats. Like, I don't even know. I remember you re saying a story that you, when you heard Get Lucky for the first time done, you were like, I don't actually remember singing that song. Like, when I'm asking you about these songs, is some of them just like, I can't tell this dude what I did fucking 20 years ago. I don't even remember. So that beat I made in the, I don't know, what's the, what's the A room? As soon as you walk in record plant. And I remember... Like the vocals in the middle room on the right-hand side. But I remember coming across that spray can sound, and I was like, okay. And at that point, like 808s was really turning up. So it was like I wanted to find something that wasn't an 808, but was different enough and would sound alien. Because, you know, I was born in 73. So Star Wars came out in, what, 76, right? Yeah, 76, 77. Yeah. And, and so did um, Craftworks, Trans Europe Express. I want to say that was 76 too. Yeah. I, I don't know, but like, you know, during that time, like a lot of black people for like years at that point was just doing the robot and shit. <laughs> so I was like, those were my influences with space. So, yeah. you know, when, when breaking and like hip hop started to really get loud, you know, we had like, craft works and people were sampling craft works. And so, you know, hearing that, I always just love making spacey sounding beats because yeah. I didn't, I hadn't, I just wasn't ready to let all that go. Yeah. So when making Drop It Like It's Hot, I knew I wanted to make something that felt more alien than, than rap. So I wanted to use like a rap rhythm, like, you know, hip hop beat pattern, but I wanted to do it with like alien sounds. I don't know why. I'm, I'm, I'm still on that, too. I mean, I haven't done it in a long time, and I actually miss it. Hint, hint, clue, clue. But that was like, it was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have this pattern on some hood shit, but I'm going to use, like, techno sounds and just use the tone. And, that, and then, like, the spray can on top. Like, when the video happened, they did the spray paint, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to replace hi-hats with the spray can sound. So I was like, mm -hmm. I'm going to touch this frequency, but I'm not going to use a hi-hat to do it or an open hi-hat to do it. I'm going to use the spray can sound. That's really why that sounded that way. Okay, I'm going to do something that we haven't done before on the Fader Uncover, but I'm going to jump on the keys for a second because I need to show one of the things that is so majestic about these early Neptunes productions. You ready? Here we go. Let's do it one more time. Jesus, that's so good. Drop it like it's hot. I mean, it has already this incredible beat, all the catchy, you've got that, all of it, Snoop's rap. But you get at the end of each chorus, this gospel turnaround, this sequence of chords that bring us back to the top that just take us into like a whole nother universe. And that that's really what these chords are. They are straight gospel chords. And, and Kanye called the Neptune sound gospel punk. And I don't agree with everything that Ye says, not a lot lately, but 
he was so on the money, right? Because they took the soul of gospel, these chords, this musicality, and mixed it with these hard-ass drums and all these other crazy sounds. You think of another song, uh, Usher, You Don't Have to Call. Banging drums, you have the Biggie reference, Don't Leave Your Girl Around Me, and then you have these chords that are just like... Right? You don't have to call. It's okay, girl, because I'm going to be all right tonight. I'm sorry for singing, but I just get so excited. I mean, gospel punk. I mean, they took it. I'm not saying they took it from Rod Temperton, but I'm sure they, you know, Rod Temperton was this amazing songwriter, wrote Off the Wall, Give Me the Night, George Benson, all the heat wave stuff. And in disco, he would just, you know, usually you just have the same bass line. You want to keep the same thing going. Just don't stop the party. But you just want these these moments of melody. And that's what he would do. So you think of uh, Give Me the Night, right? That's like, Cause there's me. You just want to keep that beat going. You don't want to disrupt it with too many chords, but you just want when that moment happens for this gospel lift. And that's what the Neptunes did. Gospel punk. And the other one that you referenced, the other song that you referenced? I was just saying in Get Lucky, I think I remember reading an article where you said like when you heard the finished mixed version of Get Lucky, you actually, because it had been recorded a long time ago and whatever else, you, you actually didn't remember playing that song or recording it. Because I, at that time I was still being, you know, getting jet lagged whenever I would go to Paris, you yeah. know? And I, we worked the day that, you know, we got there or whatever. Yeah. And they just asked me to like, you know, did I want to write to a song? I was like, all right, cool. So I'm thinking I'm writing for somebody else. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I barely remembered that session and I was getting tired. So the guys gave me this stuff called Garan Song. Oh yeah, I think I heard of it. Yeah. Yeah, and you like you it's like these dissolvable tablets you put it in. And uh I just remember being tired and going, <laughs> like, okay, okay. But I was tired. I was grateful. That was that was that was I didn't think that that was for me. I thought that was just I thought they was gonna have like some like really big big artist come sing it. Right. Do you sometimes, you've talked about this too, sometimes when you're making your own records, you pretend you're writing for somebody else because it, it kind of frees you up and Sia and other big writers have talked about this. Is that like a headspace you get into sometimes? Um, yeah, it's, it, you know, it's become harder and because I've done so much work, it's become harder yeah. and harder to fool myself to say, okay, I'm going to pretend to be such and such this day because then I get in my yeah. head. Whereas if it's legitimately for someone else, it always turns out like so much better. Yeah. So then that puts me in a position of doing records for people. And then like, I have to go, look, I'm really sorry, but I need that. Excuse me, excuse me. <laughs> Please join us next week for part two of this epic combo where we talk about N.E.R.D., we bring Lenny his flowers, talk about the secret to longevity in hip-hop, and, uh, well, we'll tell you who me and Pharrell agree is the Zeus of hip-hop. Take me out with the fader. Thanks again to Pharrell Williams for taking the time to talk with us. A special fader thank you to our Grammy and Oscar award-winning host, Mark Ronson. 
please visit thefader.com slash podcasts to read the original cover story and check out a playlist of artists mentioned in this episode. If you like the show, please share it and review us on your favorite podcast app. Please join us next Monday to find out which of your favorite artists will be uncovered next. Executive producers Rob Stone and John Cohen for the Fader Podcast Network. Talent booking Robert English. Producers Alex Robert Ross and Maddie Russell Shapiro. Directed by Daniel Nevetta and produced by the Fader in association with BYT.NYC. Engineered and mixed by David Rogers Barry. Theme music by DJ Premier. For Fader Uncovered merchandise, please visit shop.thefader.com. Thanks, and see you next week.